0: what has been almost a year long series on uh, the ordinances with this last one that we know of as anointing with oil. This is the one ordinance that, um, of all of the ordinances that we observe, probably, um, many of us would just assume we never did observe this one if we were downright honest, I suppose. And, um, It is probably the least practiced, but it is practiced, and uh, we want to look at uh, this a bit here this morning. I'm going to read verses 13 through 18, James 5. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any married? Let him sing psalms. Elias was a man, or Elijah, was a man subject to like passions as we are. And he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. And we'll stop reading there. Sorry about that okay um, before i I get into this particular passage uh, real deeply, just um, sit back with me for a minute and i 'm going to briefly run through the the Bible and just point out to you what, um, what oil meant to a person that would have lived in the bible era okay what what all oil was used for. I found this quite interesting and perhaps instructive, and I thought I would just um, just bring it to your attention. So, actually, um, the first time oil is mentioned in the Bible happens to be in our Sunday school lesson in in, um, in Genesis twenty-eight, where Jacob, after he had that encounter there with the uh, with the angels walking up and down that ladder, it said that he took that stone and he poured oil on it, and it's actually the the first time we have any reference at all to oil in the Bible. Some years later, when uh, Jacob is in the same vicinity in Genesis 35, it says the same thing happened. He took a stone and he again put oil on it, and he called the place the House of God. I think it's somewhat noteworthy that during at the time of the first anointing, the anointing of oil, there is shortly after Jacob leaves home, and we we all talked about the crisis that was in his life at that point. He's a lonely man, he's confused, he's maybe fighting human feelings of discouragement, we're not sure what all, but that was where he found himself. The second event was another time uh, that, maybe he didn't know this, but it was shortly before another crisis in his life, and that was the uh, death of his beloved uh, wife, Rachel, and uh, he had this the same experience where he used this oil to anoint this this rock that he that he put there for a a uh, emblem of his commitment to God. Another time that oil is spoken of many times actually if you read through the um, the books of exodus leviticus deuteronomy numbers, those books there often we 'll talk about something that is known as the holy anointing oil, which was olive oil mixed with a, uh, spices and this sort of thing, and if you would read in Exodus 30, you would find this recipe specifically given by God, and specifically instructed how they were supposed to use this. And it was used to anoint the furniture of the tabernacle, later the temple, and the anointing of the priests as they would come to um, to their um, their priesthood or their duties or whatever. They were they were anointed with this particular oil. The, ingredient, the ingredients used were nothing all that uh, sanctified, but that mixture, God said, I don't want anybody using this particular recipe for just mere perfume. This has one, one use and one use only, and that is what he ended up calling the holy anointing oil. The third... Um, thing I would just point out is oil was a sign of plenty and richness in Old Testament times. And just, I'm just going to read a few verses out of Deuteronomy 8 that maybe would point that out. It says, For the Lord thy God bringeth thee into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and depths that spring out of valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey. A land wherein thou shalt eat bread without scarceness, thou shalt not lack anything in it. A land whose stones are iron, and out of whose hills you may dig brass. And I won't comment on that much other than to point out that one of the mentions of richness and fatness and of the good of the land was oil. Another thing that oil was used for in the Old Testament was the anointing of some of the kings. Uh, specifically Saul in first Samuel ten says Samuel took a vial of oil and poured it on his head. And David in first Samuel sixteen, a few chapter later, a few chapters later, Samuel took a horn of oil and anointed David in the midst of his brethren. And in 1 Kings 1, we have Zadok, the priest, taking a horn of oil out of the tabernacle and anointing Solomon. The next book, in Second Corinthians 9, we have Jehu that was specifically anointed to judge and annihilate the house of Ahab. Now, it's noteworthy that um, those were the only four kings that we specifically have mentioned that were, were anointed. And I could not come up with any any satisfaction as to whether it was God's plans plan that all kings should be anointed, or um, why these particular four. But this this is the record, and that's that's. We'll just leave that at that. Another thing that oil um, was in the Old Testament; it was a very common essential of life. And I use basically anecdotal reference to uh, come to this conclusion. But think of me, think with me in 1 Kings 17, whenever um Elisha, I believe it was, it was Elijah. Boy, now I got my shoes and my jaws mixed up. But anyway, one of those prophets. He had this uh do you remember there, there was the famine in the land and um and the um Brook had dried up, and and the prophet is looking for um, something to eat. It was Elijah. Now I remember. So he came to this widow, and he said uh, um, she was out picking up sticks. And he goes, "I'd like I'd like you to make something for me." He, she said, "I'll be honest with you. All that I have is a little bit of meal and a little bit of oil." And she said, um, "I'm going to make a cake for me and my son, and then we're going to die." He said, "Well, just make me one first. So the, you, know, you know the story. She did that, and, and it said that the cruise of oil and the barrel of meal did not run out for that widow and her son for as long as the famine lasted. Um, of all things she had left, it was meal and oil, and somehow they mixed those two, and whether they baked it or whatever they did, it was, it was a very essential sustenance of life. I have a feeling if they would have been without the oil and would have just had meal, it wouldn't have went down very well, is my guess. Uh, somehow or the other, he took the mixture of the two. And the other thing I would point to is um, another widow story. Uh, and this time, it was Elisha that uh, instructed the the indebted widow that came to him for help. He said, just go around all your neighbors and get the vessels, and then take that little bit of oil you got in your house and just fill all those vessels with oil. And so that's what she did. And there's two things that I learned from that little incident. Number one, of all things she had, she did have oil. And of all things that she apparently could sell easily, it was oil. And he said, you know, take it out to your neighbors and sell it. She did that. She paid her debts off, apparently. All right. um, Another thing oil was used for, it was used for personal refreshment and purification. And I'll just give you three references real, real quickly. In the book of Esther... We have how that the maids took turns going into the king uh, to present themselves. And we just have this little anecdotal reference. It says, For so were the days of their purifications accomplished, to wit, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with sweet odors and with other things for the purifying of women. So again, just pointing out the, the, the place of oil in this particular event. Also, the book of Isaiah... Um, we have um, in Isaiah 61.3, uh, again, this is more anecdotal than anything. It talks about the oil of joy for mourning, okay? He's, he's speaking in, um, in parabolic language, I would say. But he's saying that those that mourn in Zion will, give, will be given beautiful for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called the trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And then I would uh, also point out that David, after he learned that his son had died, you remember that that son that he and Bathsheba had had together and Nathan had pronounced its demise. And it says that David fasted and he wept and he prayed until that son died. And after he died, it said he arose and he anointed himself, among other things. And lastly, one other reference, Um, Jesus talks about, to his disciples in in his instruction about fasting, he said, When you fast, he said, don't do like the people that you you see. He said, when you fast, anoint your head with oil. In other words, um, obviously that's that was a um, something people did to personally refresh them smell, themselves and a little like us, I guess, putting on a dab of aftershave, I guess, you know. So so we do have those um, those particular um Anecdotal references as well, and then, of course, um, lastly, but not was used for its healing properties. And again, I refer to the Book of Isaiah, where he, again, in somewhat parabolic language, he's talking about the the um, the nation of Israel. He said, "From the sole of the foot even into the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises." And putrefying sores, they have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified, and our Bibles say ointment, but you could use the word oil in there as well. And of course, the very, very familiar story of what we call the Good Samaritan story, where the Good Samaritan took oil and he poured into the wounds of that man that day that he found by the road. That leads us now to our text and um, again, we have the connection between oil and physical illness. There's only one other time in the in the Bible that uh, it is talked about that people were specifically anointed with oil and were healed. And that is in Mark 6, where Jesus sends out the 12. And here's what it says they did. They cast out many devils and anointed with oil. Many that were sick and healed them, it says. And from the context, one would um, one would deduct that this anointing was, with oil wasn't like, well, where's your bruise? Let's put some oil on it. It was more, there was many and various ailments, and the anointing with oil was very symbolic. What can we learn from, if we take all these references now that we, that we refer to, if there's one common theme we can pull out of it, is that oil to the Old Testament reader and perhaps New Testament reader too was such a an essential of life? You, you take oil away from the man and he couldn't he couldn't take care of his wounds. He couldn't smell good anymore and he couldn't eat. He just he was in a real jam if he didn't have oil, and he couldn't anoint his his kings and his priests. It was such a varied and and a wide array of things that oil was used for, and it was such a um, yeah, it was just a treasure part of life. And perhaps that is, if we, if we take that to the symbolism of oil, perhaps we can, we can draw from, you know, what, why do we use oil whenever we anoint the sick rather than, I don't know what, water or whatever. You know, I just think there's some deep, um, deep meaning to oil, kind of the essential of life. Uh, I guess you would say, that that we can draw from, from that symbolism, perhaps. I would like to quickly just um, talk about how the anointing with oil has been used or applied um, historically, how this scripture has been applied historically. And it won't take me long to tell you. Um, historically, outside of this particular uh, passage in James, where we have this this little piece of instruction, we can't really find any event in the New Testament where Paul or Peter or, or somebody outside of the twelve disciples there and that what I just referred to that actually anointed someone with oil that was sick. It, it's just not. It's absent. We don't really have any any evidence that anybody did that. It's also interesting that there is. Um, we of course being from Anabaptist background, um, I'm always interested to know how they uh, would have applied the scripture. And there is no reference to the Anabaptists doing this at all in any way uh, in Europe or in North America until about the mid-1800s. My research leads me to conclude that probably the reason that was is because in the Catholic Church, which is what the Anabaptists, of course, came out of for the most part, the anointing with oil had become very much of a um, well. They called it uh, well. There were several different things they used it for, but one of the applications was what they called extreme unction, was where if a person was on his deathbed, he was anointed with oil as sort of a last rite, um, whatever. I, I'm not exactly sure. I didn't study it much, but um, if you want to get into the nuances of it. Um, the oil had to be blessed by a priest. Um, it was it was seen as something that could forgive sins. Uh, sometimes the oil was applied. Sometimes it was touched. Sometimes it was consumed. Anyway, I can I can well understand why there was perhaps a um, um, perhaps the Anabaptists in the past did not practice this even the way we would because of the connotations that were, were, um, yeah, attached to it. So the question could be raised, why in the mid-1800s do we begin to have record that um, people in our churches were practicing this? And there may be several reasons. But my conclusion is, according to what I have read, is there probably during that time was a renewed interest in, in the Bible. In studying the Bible and practicing the Bible and uh, this, this particular um, passage found, it, found a, an outworking, I guess you could say. So for the last few minutes here, I would just like to just simply go through these verses here we read in James See what we can deduct. What can we simply deduct about this particular ordinance from this simple passage here in James? I first of all want to um, just point out that if you would just sit down and you read through the book of James, and it wouldn't take you that long, you probably could do it in a half an hour, you would quickly um, conclude that James is a writer that emphasizes practicality and simple Christian living. Uh, not a lot of theology in um, in uh, James's book here, and he's very heavy on a Christianity that works. He says that you qualify your righteousness by the observable fruits that are expressed in your daily living, and so that kind of gives the tone of the book of James. So, in verses thirteen and fourteen, I think what James is saying here is that there are appropriate activities. For certain human experiences in life, and all these activities have to bring glory to God. So He goes, you know, is is any among you married? Is any of you, any of you feeling good, feeling happy? Well, here's something you can do. Um, if you're feeling that way, well, why don't you just go ahead and um, sing some sing some songs? That that's an appropriate way to um, to express your your happiness and your Christianity. He glorifies God. In other words, uh, don't throw a riotous party or um, start singing secular music, but sing a psalm, he goes. Now, I don't think that a person that's married would have been limited to singing psalms, okay? He could There would have been other appropriate things to do, but he's saying this is an example of something you could do if you were married. Then he goes on and he says... Um, Well, actually, I hit the Mary part first. The first thing he says, and we'll go to that now, he says, is any of you afflicted? Now, I want to point out here that, just real quickly, that the word afflicted in verse 13 and the word sick in verse 14 are two different words. And we'll touch on that a little later, but they're not the same. This word afflicted would be more like, does any of you have a cold? Any of you have a bad cold? Or any of you just stubbed your toe yesterday and you can't get around? Or did anybody break their leg? That's that's more the afflicted part. Any of you kind of down? Got maybe a, a little case of pneumonia or something. He's saying, if you're under the weather, an appropriate thing to do now is to pray. He says, uh, let, let him pray. And I think it's interesting. and It didn't stand out to me until I read over this and studied it a bit. He doesn't say what to pray for. He just says, let him pray. Now, we immediately assume that he's saying, pray for healing for your cold. But he doesn't say that. That would be an appropriate activity, but it could be, you know, I'm kind of housebound here for the next week and I can't go to church because, you know, I'm sick. I can't really do much. I'm not feeling well. I'm running a bit of a fever. Uh, what better activity, if you're sick and you can't do much else anyway, is to pray. And you know what? You can pray for yourself, but you can pray for Warren, too, while you're at it. Or anybody else that comes to mind that need, might need prayer. That is an appropriate activity for um, for a time when you're sick. All right, now let's go to the, to the next thing. Then he asks a question, is any sick among you? All right, and now I mentioned that there's a, uh, there's a difference between the, the afflicted and the sick. And verse 13. So this, this thing of sick would suggest a a chronic illness. I mean, we're, we're, we're down now. I mean, we're, we are, we're laying in bed. We're maybe, um, you know, maybe there's a question just how this thing could go. Um, it's more in a bad cold now. There's, uh, there's, this is a real, uh, this is a real sickness now. And so he says, in this season of life, he said there's an appropriate thing to do here too. And so let's, uh, let's just, uh, go down through here and just see what he says is an appropriate response. So he says, let him call. Alright. So, um, there's a condition here that this person that is sick is apparently not unconscious. It says he must call. The person must be responsive enough. And with it enough to make this a personal choice, and it would, by implication, uh, we could conclude that this person is an adult, or at least um, um, he he is matured enough in his life to understand exactly what he is calling for. And then he says, "Let him call for the elders of the church." And so, from this part of it, we can easily deduct that this person apparently identifies with a church. And that this church that he identifies with has uh, identifiable elders or leaders that should preside over this activity. And um, so, if you're I don't know here in James's situation, if you're at the church at Ephesus, you call for the elders at Ephesus, not necessarily the elders from Laodicea. Um, so we have we have that um, also. Now, the other thing that maybe is a bit more veiled, but uh, I think we could quickly deduct this, we're, we're concluding that the person's sick enough that he's sort of in bed. He's sort of bedbound, bound perhaps, um, or, or not, you know, has a chronic illness. And he's calling for the elders to come, and so it would, it would imply that this is probably somewhat of a private affair, that it's the sick man and the elders and maybe his immediate family or something, but there isn't a lot of fanfare going into this. This is somewhat of a private, um, private affair. We could conclude perhaps. And then it says that the elders should pray over him, anointing with oil in the name of the Lord. Now it is it is interesting to me that prayer is the first thing that's mentioned. They should pray for him, and it also mentions that in this anointing process, that it, that the person should be anointed in the name of the Lord. And then, um, just getting ahead of myself just a little bit, James, this, is the, this is the only little reference James makes to the anointing. He doesn't wax long or even say how much oil or how the oil should be applied necessarily, but he waxes really long on the prayer part of it. So we can quickly conclude that it's the prayer that matters, and that the oil, the anointing with oil, is purely a symbolism of the prayer and the the uh, intention of this particular person. So the oil is, doesn't necessarily. In other words, um, I think what James is saying is, don't go anoint the man and forget to pray. Well, let, let's make sure we pray. Let's pray for this person because that's ultimately what's going to fix this man's problem. So let's just recap. What are the fundamentals of this ordinance? All right? Prayer. Prayer is, I'm going to say, the number one fundamental. There's a strong emphasis on coming to God in prayer about the illness at hand. He also talks about praying in faith in verse 15. He said, the prayer of faith shall save the sick. You know, what does that mean? Does that mean if the sick doesn't get well that our faith was lacking? Well, I think we would be doing injustice to Scripture to say that that couldn't be the case. we got to be honest enough to say that that perhaps could be the case. However, we also have to have the faith to accept that what we may wish for and what God would desire could be two different things. Paul wished to be healed. And he prayed fervently to God more than once to be healed, and it didn't happen. Now, did Paul lack faith? Paul actually, through God, of course, healed some people, right? And Paul couldn't doctor himself? Well, it wasn't a lack of faith. We can say that pretty uh pretty um, with some pretty hard evidence on Paul's part. And so I would I would just caution us not to um, a let's not approach this ordinance without faith. But then let's not beat ourselves up if things don't go the way we think they should have gone. Because, indeed, we have to have the faith that whatever happens, this was God's will. Also, in verse 15, it talks about the Lord raising this person up. The healing will be of God no matter how, when, or where this happens. Um, Think about, I think it was Martha's response at the grave of Lazarus. Lord, I know. I know he will be raised up at the last day. Um, And we all know that, don't we? Even if a person dies, he will rise again. All right? So what about this part, if he has committed sins, they should be forgiven him? This is probably one that if you take this verse by itself, you could really run places you shouldn't go with it. I think we really need to go down to verse 16 uh, to to qualify this the sins being forgiven part. In verse 16, I have a, a Greek um, New Testament at home where it takes the actual Greek words as they are written out in the Greek and gives you the exact English word underneath there as it's written out. And so it, it, it reads backwards sometimes and a little confusing, but it, that's the way the, the writer did this. In this particular verse, there is the word therefore that is missing in our King James Version. And I'm not sure why. It would seem like perhaps it should be here. But it would read like this in the Greek. Confess your faults, therefore, one to another. I really believe that... Okay, how can I bring this together? We we all know from the rest of the Bible that... Anointing with oil is not what is called for for forgiveness of sin. All right, do, do I have to expound along on that? I, if if we need to expound longer on that, I'm not prepared to do that. But read through the New Testament. Only God can for, forgive sins. It isn't nowhere else is is it called for that if you want to confess your sins, get someone to bring some oil around and anoint you. It, it just doesn't jive. So what is what is what is the apostle trying to tell us here? Here's what I would conclude. Uh, a critical illness will bring clarity to life. All right. So if somebody announces to you that you have, let's say, cancer—that's the word that often comes to mind—that will bring a, a particular clarity to your life. I would, I would suggest. Suddenly, things that maybe were important yesterday aren't important today, and maybe things that were unimportant yesterday are very important today. That—that that is what I would anticipate would happen to me if that word was attached to my name. I would, I would suspect. If there is indeed sins in my life, besetting sins, let's say, that are hindering me, suddenly I think there is an urgency in my heart to make those things right, that maybe there wasn't there yesterday. Maybe I was too presumptuous yesterday. And I think perhaps what this what this passage of Scripture is saying is, if there are sins... And we're here, and we want to pray, and we want to pray in faith, and we want, we want nothing standing between us and God. It is an appropriate time to confess in that private um, spot anything that might be in my life that would be hindering that prayer of faith. Now, if you have different, uh, different thoughts on that, uh, I would be quite in- interested and eager to hear but I believe that um, when we do this, when we, con- we are willing to confess our, our sins, our problems, in a very sincere way, there will be a healing that is far, far superior to anything physical. The physical at that point is just going to be a side benefit. If there is indeed sins that we have committed that needs to be taken care of, um, the freedom and release that's going to come from that confession you all know what that's like. That's an unbelievable experience. And then he goes in to this example of Elijah, and I won't dwell long on this, but I wonder if 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 if, if Peter, James here, is not thinking, you know, too many of my readers are going to say, you know, I don't have that kind of faith. I, I really don't. And he goes, look, he said, Elijah was a man just like you, exactly like you. And he prayed that it wouldn't rain and it didn't rain, and he prayed again, and then it rained. Now, I went back and reviewed that story. What happened after it rained? Elijah went into a fit of depression. He went up to the cave and hung out, and God had to come around and and, and get him out of it. That's what he did. Elijah was a man of like passions, just like you and me, and he prayed, and it worked. And and that I find so... um, Encouraging, I guess, to think that a man like Elijah, that never even saw death, he was translated, I mean, he wasn't translated, but he, a horse and chariot came up and picked him up and took him to heaven. I think of him as, a, as an unbelievable man of God. And James says, hey, just so you know, he's just like you. All right, let's conclude here. How should we as Christians approach illness? And I'm going to just bump through this very quickly. Um, number one, Always remember that we live in a sin-cursed earth, and sickness and death are inevitable. Outside of the return of the Lord, before we reach a 100, just give or take a year or two, we're going to die. It's going to happen. We may as well get used to that. We're going to get sick. These things will happen. There is no condemnation in the Bible that I could find for seeking the aid of a physician outside... Of times when the physician was sought, but the Lord was not. Okay? And we have two examples of that. Second Chronicles, we have uh, the King Asa that said he was diseased in his feet. And when he was diseased, he sought not the Lord, but he sought physicians. Why didn't he seek the physicians and the Lord? But no, it says he just went to the physicians. Uh, perhaps not... Quite as maybe a, a bit more of a veiled reference was the, the woman with the issue of blood that Jesus healed, who had spent all her living on physicians and could not find healing. But at last she went to Jesus and she found healing. Another just anecdotal reference in Colossians 4:14, Paul refers to Luke as the beloved physician. Now, why was he Paul's beloved physician? Now, this is completely imagination, but I wouldn't doubt. That as much as Luke and Paul interacted with one another on those missionary journeys, that uh, Paul didn't pull Luke into a corner there on the boat one day and say, "Hey, Luke, you got any ideas for my illness here? You know, I've, I've talked to the Lord about it, and He says that this is what I got to deal with. But would you have any? Would you have any advice for me? Why was he so beloved? Why was he a beloved physician? Okay, doesn't say beloved brother. Says a beloved physician. All right." The conclusion I would have is it's not wrong to seek help from the medical world when we are looking for restoration of our health. However, we should always seek the Lord's will and be satisfied with his possession of our life and his divine right to work his perfect will in our lives. And this particular ordinance is not a commandment, but it is an appropriate and advisable thing to do whenever we are faced with a serious illness. Allow me to just say this yet. There's a lot of, um, I'm just going to say devilish, okay, activities that people engage in today that are done in the name of the Lord. Now, I'll give you an example. Bear with me. I know the clock's moving, but just bear with me. I had a, I had a man that told me how that he had this, this problem. I don't even remember what the problem was, but he went to this Guru, that was gonna help him fix the problem. So what they did is they took, he told the man what the problem was, and so they took, and I can't remember what, herbs, pills, I'm not sure what, and he put, he would put them in his hand and he'd hold his arm out like this, and the man would pray, and if his arm went down, I believe, if he couldn't hold his arm up, that meant that that particular remedy was going to fix it. So they went through this process, and all at once he said whatever he was holding, he absolutely could not hold his arm up anymore. It it just went down. He he had no control over his arm. And he said, you know, the the guy behind him was praying in the name of the Lord. That's exactly what he told me. I don't know, folks, but that did not ring clear to me. I'm sorry. It just did not ring clear to me. Okay? It just does not feel like a way to fix a problem. In reaction to those sorts of things, and in order to keep a healthy distance from the questionable, there are some some among us that have become anti-anything that contains the word natural, okay? And I understand why that is, just because of too much of this tomfoolery, okay? To me, that seems somewhat reactionary. But I do believe that caution and discretion should be used in this arena of our health. And I just would say this. I'm not against natural at all. In fact, at all. I believe there's a a place for those types of things. But when remedies that we seek out contain words like energies and radionics and homeopathy and these types of things... We do very well to sit up and take notice. We, we really do. If you need more information on that, I would, I would advise you to, to take Nolan Byler's book, The High Cost of Holistic Healing, and read it. Very small book. And I'll, and I'll tell you this. Before you, you prejudge it because Nolan is a medical doctor, don't do that. He's very fair in that book. He's very fair. And um, a very good read, and I would I would uh, strongly urge you to read that if you have any further interest in that. I've kept you long enough. I hope that this, um, this small um, exposition on this uh, anointing with oil has been helpful. <clears throat> I hope our look at these seven ordinances of the Mennonite Church has been helpful. I hope that it has grounded us more deeply in the Christian faith, I hope it has helped us to appreciate the Bible more than we had some months before.